Hosea chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this evening. I'll begin reading at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me, though they call to the Most High, then it all exalt him. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a, ro a lion. When he roars, then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord our God, again, we are thankful for your plan of redemption. We are thankful that that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are thankful that he is the one who was punished in our stead. And we are even, th even thankful now, O Lord, that as we are adopted as sons of the true and living God, that you do chasten us. You're the one who guides us. You're the one who corrects us. You're the one who reminds us uh, about how we ought to live. And you remind us of where our strength and hope lies. And we are thankful that that lies in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we ask and pray as we come and consider your word again this evening that you would send forth your spirit. Please help us to be awake and attentive. Help us to be... Um, aware, help us to be watchful, help us to be able to hear uh, what you have to say to us this day, that you would enlighten our minds, enlighten our eyes, help us to see uh, what your word says, and we know that we need your spirit to help us do this very thing. So we pray that you'd be pleased to bless the preaching and the teaching as it goes forth. Please speak to your people this night and give them the comfort and encouragement they need, and we pray that you give us the correction that we need as well. So be with us, we pray, in the name of Christ, amen. Well, when children come into the wor this world, even though they are cute and cuddly, they come into this world sinners, and they come into this world very helpless. They really have to be taught everything. They really have to be taught how to hold a spoon. They have to be taught that sand does not go in your mouth. They have to be taught that Lego does not go into your mouth. They really are quite helpless little beings when they come into this world. And those lovely little beings need some correction. Those lovely little beings need some chastening because they are wayward, because they do not know the correct way, they need some guidance. And it might be the case that a parent will chasten their child, their parent will try to deal with their child, a parent will try to rein their child in, but that child is a little sinner and they could be what's called the incorrigible son. And certainly that's what we see here today with respect to Israel. We certainly see this father-son relationship, this image that we see in Hosea chapter 11. We know that the Lord chastens his people, and he chastens his people for the good of his people. And so we see the Lord talking about this chastening, the Lord talking about this correction that he's going to bring to Israel, this punishment that's going to come for a wicked son. Then there's also going to be restoration as well for a wicked son. 
And certainly Israel was like a wayward son. Israel is like that incorrigible son. As we see, as we are looking at the time of the divided kingdom, we know that Israel in the north was always wicked. They always had wicked kings. There were 7,000 who did not bow the knee to Baal. There was the remnant, but nonetheless, it was a wicked nation to be in. They were engaging in adultery, spiritual idolatry against Yahweh. And so Hosea comes to warn them. Hosea comes to call them to repentance. Hosea comes to expose them with respect to their sins, expose what their sins are, because they're very unaware. They're worshiping all the gods alongside Yahweh. They're worshiping Baals and Asherahs alongside Yahweh. They were being a wicked and a wayward son. Now, we know the other image that we know Hosea for, namely marriage, and we see Hosea's marriage and his marriage to Gomer, and certainly that's a picture of Israel and Yahweh and how Israel is a wayward wife, an adulterous wife, and certainly the message of Hosea it really is the, uh, in that picture of Israel's spiritual adultery with Hosea's marriage because they're just a wicked people. And we've been in that section that looks at a forgetful people. And as we looked at last time, it's been a bit of a long slog from chapter 6 on. We got to some encouragement uh, when we came to chapter 10, speaking about this trained heifer and this sowing in righteousness. But chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 uh, were quite dark. Uh, were quite sinful. We're quite uh, hard to deal with as we went through. But that's how wicked and awful and terrible sin is. They're a fair-weather people and ignorant people and unaware people and idolatrous people, a root that is dried up, people that shriek over their golden calf that's going to be taken away. They continue to try to worship God, but they try to have joy, but they don't realize that a time of reprieve and uh, it does not mean Yahweh is happy with them. And so we see how they've been provoking the Lord to anger and they've been provoking the Lord to anger, much like a wayward son. And certainly we see that's the problem in chapter 11. We see how they are a disobedient, wayward child. That's a problem in Israel. It's a problem in the south, in Judah as well, with the leaders primarily, but especially the people. They continue to go against what Yahweh has said. Even after his warnings, even after the words that he says, return to me, or even the words that he says, if you don't return to me, here's what's going to happen. Even after he actually does bring forth that punishment, they still do not come to him. They still have not returned. They still continue to be a wayward child. And so there certainly is some good application for us as the people of God. So there's application for our modern time. Even though we are under the new covenant, we are saved and changed in Christ, and we cannot that cannot be taken away from us. Nonetheless, sometimes in our present day, there are churches who do not look like churches at all. They are wayward and disobedient. There are professing Christians that no longer look like actual Christians. They are wayward and disobedient. And even amongst the true Christians, amongst the people of God, sometimes we need a bit of a chastening, don't we? We need a gentle correction. We need a gentle reminder of the way in which we should walk as the children of of God. We need a father who rightly saves and a father who rightly chastens a child who needs to learn, a child who needs that chastening. And so in Hosea 11, 1 through 11, the Lord God punishes Israel as a wicked, wayward, rebellious son, but he also promises restoration. So again, we come to certainly a difficult portion, but also an encouraging portion as well as we see punishment, but then we also see restoration. 
And those are our two key words that we're going to frame uh, these verses with tonight. And so the first point is going to be punishment for a wicked son in verses 1 through 7. And then secondly, we'll see restoration for a wicked son in verses 8 through 11. So punishment and restoration. So punishment for a wicked son, verses 1 through 7, and restoration for a wicked son. So let's first look at punishment for a wicked son in verses 1 through 7. And notice we see Israel is an ignorant child. They do not know in verses 1 through 4. Now again, the context. We see in chapter 10 how Israel is more concerned with their golden calf. We see how they increased. They increased in prosperity, but that increase in prosperity did not increase in the worship of Yahweh alone. It just increased in idol worship. It increased in Baal worship. And so we see the people's hearts are divided. They are guilty. God's going to judge them. And then we certainly see how they're more fearful of their golden calf being taken away. They're more fearful of that golden thing. They're shrieking over that very idea of the calf being taken away to Assyria. And so there is this encouragement, though, that the peoples shall be like a trained heifer. God is going to correct them. God is going to harness her. God is going to gently guide her. And some of that image comes up again uh, in verse 4 as well. But we see that she is ignorant. We see this agricultural imagery uh, uh, throughout this book. And now we see this family imagery between the father and the son. And so we see how he's a young child, how he's an adopted child, and then we'll see how he's ignorant. And so we see in verse 1, we see this reminiscence of the exodus from Egypt. And this book, it talks about the exodus so very often. Remember, that's the main redemptive event in Old Covenant history. In Old Covenant Israel, we see how Israel comes up out of the land of Egypt as God brought them out of that. God saved them. God redeemed them. And so what is in view here is when God brings them up, when Israel was a child, I loved him. We see God's promises to Abraham. God says to him, I will make you the father of many nations. I shall give you seed and land. And certainly we see its physical fulfillment in the people of Israel. We see them grow when they go into Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis. And then we see later on the land fulfilled uh, when the people of Israel cross over the Jordan in the book of Joshua. Now, the spiritual fulfillment, the seed is Christ and the promised land is heaven. We see certain, that language certainly used uh, throughout the New Testament, but especially in Galatians chapter Three. But for now, the exodus is in view. When God chose them, when God brought them up, when we see this electing love, this calling love, this gracious love, certainly the exodus was in view in many places, but an encouraging use of it is in Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. I will give her, uh, talking about alluring her, verse 14, the mercy he's going to have, I will lure her, I will bring her into the wilderness, I will speak comfort to her. Uh, I will be kind to her. I shall sing there. Uh, she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. So there's the picture of the blessing of Egypt and the being brought out of Egypt. But as we'll also see, there's also this possibility of returning to Egypt by way of captivity. But here it's positive in verse one. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Here's my little child. Here's my little one out of Egypt. I called my son. Israel is called the firstborn in Exodus chapter 4. We see there this special chosen people. No one denies that very thing, but we see later on it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel is called that firstborn in Exodus 4 verses 22 
and 23. And so a lot of ways, the Exodus is a battle of the dads, so to speak. It's a battle of Yahweh versus Pharaoh. As Moses goes and speaks on behalf of Yahweh and says, you need to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I will not do that very thing. And we see that Yahweh is the one who shows his might and power to redeem his people. So he redeems them. He loves them. He is good to them. He is gracious with them. But notice how quickly they begin to sacrifice to the Baals. And not just quickly, but perpetually. They do it initially at the golden calf situation in Exodus 32. They do it at Baal, Baal Peor, which we saw a reminiscence of that in chapter 9, which is in Numbers 25. We see how Israel has always gone after the Baals. And that we see even during the time of Hosea, they continue to go after the Baals. They continue to worship gods that are not the one true and living God. But we see how quickly God saves them, God redeems them, but see how wayward the child is right away as they called them. So they went from them. Perhaps it could be uh, suggested as Yahweh called them, Yahweh allured them, Yahweh uh, brought them and saved them, but they went from Yahweh. They went from him and they went and sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. The point is they did it initially. The point is they continued to do do it. The point is they have been continually a wayward, idolatrous, harlotry, uh, harlotrous, type people, a people that have gone after vile and awful things. They have turned to idols. We saw that again in chapter 10 with this calf at at Samaria. The people are mourning for it. They're more concerned with that than they are with Yahweh, this incorrigible, this wayward son. And certainly the incorrigible son of Deuteronomy 21 could be in the, uh, the background that is, there is this son that is just a little little wretch, a little wicked one, this little one that even after the parents chasten, even after the parents correct, even after the parents discipline, still will not obey. They still will not listen. And the same thing is true with respect to Israel. They will not listen. Yahweh loves them. Out of Egypt, I called my son but they sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. So they are young, they are loved. We see the electing love, but we also see how ignorant and disobedient this child is. But then we also see in verses 3 and 4 how broken and needy the child is. Broken and needy Israel is. Again, we see the love of Yahweh for his son. It's this image of a parent teaching their child to walk. Now, all this language is metaphorical language. You know, there's big words that we use in theology called anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms. That is, anthropomorphisms refer to times that uh, the Bible uses body part-like language to describe something about our God. It's not as though that God actually has body parts, but it helps us understand more. It, It accommodates to our language. Pathisms are human emotions. There's human language, human emotions used to describe something about our infinite God. And those are especially uh, in view when we get to verse 8. So I know those are big words on a Sunday night, but it helps us understand and see how Yahweh speaks to us. And so this language of of God, this father um, stooping low to his child, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. We see this father carrying his little child and helping them to walk, making sure as they teeter and they totter that they are steady and sturdy uh, as they go. But notice, even though he helped them, even though he loved them, even though he encouraged them, as he got older, they did not know that I healed them. 
They did not know that I loved them. They did not know that I watched over them. And this language of healing comes in Exodus chapter 15. Right after the people come out of the land of Egypt and right after that song of Moses in Exodus 15, what do the people do? They murmur. They murmur and grumble and complain. And it would be better if we were back uh, in Egypt. We'd be better if we were under slavery. Wouldn't that be a better thing? We don't have to uh, whine and be, be cry, out, uh, cry out to him. It would be more wonderful. And so Yahweh says to them in Exodus 15, 26, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commands and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. He is the one who watches over them. He is the one who heals them. He is the one who protected them in the face of the, of the threat of Pharaoh, in the face of the threat of Egypt. He is the one who healed them and guided them. And so again, that uh, language of healing is drawing our attention back to that exodus. God watched over them. God guided them. God took them by the hand. But as they got older, they did not walk with the Lord. I've heard that parenting gets harder the older a child gets, especially as children perhaps grow into their adult uh, stages and they're no longer walking with the Lord. And how big of a burden that is on parents. That is perhaps similar to what we see here. We see how he loves her or loves Ephraim. He loves the son, I should say, uh, where the image is changed from a wicked wife to a wayward son, how he loves that son. And yet they did not know that I healed them. And this loving language continues with, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. I removed that yoke. I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. Uh, this is perhaps a blending of the heifer type language, but the focus on the contrast with what God does with an animal and what God does with man. It's a, a gentle cord. It's, it's a band of love. I, I was one who removed that yoke from their neck. I was the one who brought them and I saved them and I took that heavy burden that was upon them. I stooped down and I fed them. He fed them in the wilderness. He fed them as they wandered. They did not lack anything, the Bible says. They did not lack one thing in the wilderness as they wandered. Yahweh provided for them. Yahweh was with them. Yahweh guided them in the wilderness. Now, one thing that could be in view here is if the incorrigible son is perhaps uh, in the background. In that section of the incorrigible son, one thing that a parent has to do in Israel is they have to bring their wayward child to the tribunal. They have to bring their wayward child to the, the judges because if the child is found guilty, they're going to be stoned. Can you imagine doing that as a parent, taking your wayward child, wayward son, wayward daughter, wayward whoever, uh, to that place and having to bring them before that tribunal? Now, certainly it would be later on, probably certainly adult children are in view. Uh, certainly a lot of time needs to pass by, you know, with that, but uh, that is certainly uh, in view here. And so I think with verses three and four, it's as though Yahweh is saying, as he's speaking before the tribunal, I mean, he is the judge, but the image is that tribunal. Look, I walked with them. I, I was with them. I guided them. I was, I stooped and I fed them, but they did not listen. They backslid. And so here's what's going to happen. Here's what needs to happen and that's what we see in verses 5 through 7 with a punished child. So we go from a loving, ignorant child to a broken, needy child to a punished child. And so there's going to be new captivity for Israel. And we see this with verse 5. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refused to repent. Yahweh so kindly told them to come and return. 
Yahweh so often by way of the prophets came and said to them, you come and you listen, you come and return to me, you come and find mercy. Now we know later on that those prophecies find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the restoration that he brings But for the people of Israel, as the redemptive history is unfolding, God had said, return to me. Return to me. Come to me. Yahweh is patient and long-suffering. He warns them with words. He seeks to correct them with words. But when the words do not work, he has to threaten, warn with actual punishment. And when that threat and warning of actual punishment does not work, then he actually has to bring down that punishment. He warned them, and they need to listen. He warned them, and he needs to then punish them. He gave them many opportunities and was very patient with them. And so he says, he shall not return to the land of Egypt. There's been other imagery throughout the book of Hosea that there's going to be this reversal of the exodus. They're going to return to Egypt. Now, the return to Egypt is not a literal return to Egypt. It is a going back to captivity. And it's going to be a captivity that is under Assyria. But the image is meant to be potent. The image is meant to be vivid. It's a reversal. They're going back to slavery. God brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Now God is going to send them back into Egypt. God is going to send them back into captivity. God is going to send them back to a place that they should not go. This is actually promised in Deuteronomy 28, verse 68. In the section that focused on blessings and curses, mainly curses, verse 68. If you do not do what the Lord says, and the Lord will take you back to Egypt in ships. The Lord will take you back to the place of bondage by the way of which I said to you, you shall never see it again. And there you shall be offered for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. That is the curse that God is going to bring upon them if they do not do what Yahweh says. Israel does not do what Yahweh says, and so he brings that curse upon them. They go back to Egypt, but when they go back to Egypt, what we're saying is they go back to Assyria. So he's bringing forth what this means in more clearer detail for us in verse 5. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king. Assyria is returning to Egypt. Babylon is returning to Egypt. Babylon and Assyria is the reversal of that exodus, this reversal type overtone that we've seen throughout this book. We saw it in chapter 9, verse 3. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt. In chapter 8, 13. Now he will remember their uh, iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. And then 7, 11, we see as well, Ephraim is also like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt they go to Assyria. Now that, that actually could be more they're looking to Egypt for help and then they actually go to Assyria for help and the one that they went to for help is going to be the one that God uses to bring judgment upon them, Assyria. And we know that this happens when Samaria is taken in the date that you all know so well, 722 BC. That is when Samaria is taken by Assyria. Assyria gets very close to Judah. They pretty much almost take it. They take the fortified cities. But then we see Yahweh's deliverance uh, under Hezekiah when Hezekiah prays. And then God, by the angel of the Lord, routes Sennacherib's army. And they are pushed back. And then eventually the south is taken in 586. But they're going to go back to captivity. The sword shall slash in his cities devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. 
They did not repent. They did not seek the Lord, but they sought idols. They sought men. They sought Assyria. They did not seek God. And so they shall be consumed. And notice my people are a people bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. They look up in their false religion. They do not exalt God. And the scary part is they thought that they were worshiping Yahweh, right? We'll call upon Yahweh and call upon Baal. We'll see which one saves us. We'll call upon Egypt. We'll call upon Assyria. We'll see which one helps us. You see, that's the sad part, isn't it? That's the difficult part. That's the hard part is that they did not see. They had no awareness with respect to the sins that they were engaging in. They didn't exactly leave their husband, but they brought lovers into his bed is what they did. That's how wicked Israel has been. That's how wayward this son has been. There are people bent on backsliding from me, though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. And so God must punish. He must punish his wayward child. He must punish Israel. He must punish Judah for their wickedness. And again, that's exactly what he does. And so the application, I think, teaches us two things. It teaches us something about judgment, but it also teaches us something about being chastened. And so certainly those who are not in Christ Jesus shall die in their trespasses and sins and shall have their sins punished forever because of this just God. And notice the reality of final judgment shall come for the unrepentant and the destruction of Samaria and the destruction of Jerusalem uh, in 586 and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 or AD 70 all are types of the final judgment when God shall annihilate, when God shall judge, when God shall punish because man has not done what is right in God's sight. Man has not worshiped God. Man has not glorified God. Man has not honored God. And so what is he going to do? He's going to punish. They're all types of final judgment. And sinners who are not perfect in, them, in themselves shall be rightly judged. That's why we need someone else in whom God judges them in our stead. That's why we need Christ Jesus to die upon that cross for us. That's why I need the son to come. The one who truly is out of Egypt I call my son. That he would be the one who is cut off for his people. That he would be the one who is the curse for his people. That he would be the one who bears the punishment on himself in our stead. And that's a great blessing to consider. What we once were, what we deserve, and what we are now in Christ Jesus based upon what he has done. And even, brethren, as we walk this world, as we are called the children of God, as we are adopted as sons of the true and living God, we must recognize that we are saved and forgiven, but we can fall under God's fatherly displeasure. This is the book of Hebrews chapter 12. This is the application section for this sermon in Hebrews chapter 12. Talking about how the Lord corrects us. The Lord chastens us. Our Father rightly guides us when, we are un, when we're not watching, when we're not careful. He is the one who chastens. And so in our Christian life, we ought to, as we run the race, look to Christ Jesus. But then he also talks about striving against sin. And he also talks about, as he speaks to us as sons in verse 5 of chapter 12, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? 
Train a child up in the way he should go. Train the child up uh, in the way he should go, and when he grows up, he shall uh, not depart from it. The rod and the reproof give discipline, but a child left to his own devices uh, brings shame to his mother. But if you are chaste, if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Brethren, we can be chastened. God corrects us. God disciplines us, doesn't he? Because he wants to correct us in the way that we should go. And there are many ways that that can happen. Certainly as we gather on the Lord's Day and the word goes forth, that's how God corrects and chastens. Sometimes, you know, if we're proud, God can bring something into our life that humbles us and brings us low. And certainly we have to be careful that we don't look at every difficulty we're dealing with as a chastening of the Lord, but we can certainly look at every difficulty we're dealing with as a learning situation, as a learning process, as a learning curve to teach us and wean us from this world, knowing that our Father knows what is best for us, knowing that our Father dispenses things in our life for our good. Our Father dispenses things in our life too, even possibly and most of the time, and always to correct us in the way in which we ought to go. That's a blessing. We walk with God, but we can fall under his fatherly displeasure. And thankfully, he chastens us, he instructs us when we are wayward. And he will not let us be wayward, will he? He will not let us fall by the wayside. We are his, we are adopted. None of Christ's sheep shall be snatched from his hands. And he shall guide us as those sheep to make sure we don't walk upon a walk on a way that we shouldn't or don't fall off the cliff when we're walking through that valley of the shadow of death. He is our shepherd. He is our father. He is the one who watches out for us. Now, one thing we can highlight with respect to redemptive history is that the punish for old, punishment for old covenant Israel makes way for the new covenant, makes way for a far greater covenant, makes way for restoration. So there's punishment, but after punishment, there is restoration. So we'll move on from uh, punishment to restoration for a wayward son in verses 8 through 11. And notice we do see a loving father in verses 8 and 9. Punishment will not be forever. There is restoration that comes. There is going to be repentance for Israel uh, but we know that comes in Christ Jesus. We see this in Jeremiah 31, talking about the new covenant and what that looks like. It shall not be like the covenant of old that can be broken. It shall not be, and notice it's with the house of uh, Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds. It's going to be internal. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Restoration is going to come for a wayward son for a wayward people, but it's going to come in the one who is perfect in every way. And notice we see the motive behind it. We see it is not based on anything that is good within us, but based upon God's love. And again, we see this sort of 
anthropopathism type language to help us understand. When we say God is love and God is infinitely love, we don't really fathom that, right? We don't understand what infinite means. We don't understand what eternal means. We don't understand what a love that you know, does not increase or decrease means. We don't get that. So God stoops to us, and so he uses this accommodative language to help us, this churning language, this sort of stirring language, this sympathy-type language. It's not as though God is, uh, you know, stirred, but it highlights something about his love for us. And so we see him say this sorrow, uh, uh, the, the, this, 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 this hope for them, this reconciliation that he brings, it's not going to be an absolute destruction. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I make you like Adma, and how can I set you like Zeboim? Or, uh, and if you know your Bible, you know Adma and Zeboim refers to what places? Sodom and Gomorrah. How can I make you like Sodom and Gomorrah? How can I make you like that place, which is also a type of final judgment as well? It's also found in Deuteronomy 22:20, this language of Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboyim. And so he's talking about, how can I give you up? He's going to punish her, but how can I give you up? How can I hand you over forever? How can I make you like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? The promise is he's not going to make them like Sodom and Gomorrah. But that again, promise comes in whom? Christ Jesus. And that promise comes for whom? It comes for the church, who is the people of God, that chosen race, that holy priesthood, that, that, that royal generation, that people that have been chosen to be the people of God, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 2, 1 Peter 2, Romans 9, all talking about how the church is the people of God in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 8 and 10, quoting Jeremiah 31, talking about how the church is the people of God because Christ is the true Israel. The true church and true believers, which does include the remnant, true believers who are under that old covenant, believers in Israel, uh, that, that we don't have to fear judgment when it comes because Christ has passed through that judgment for us. We don't have to fear that day when he comes because we are in him. And for the old covenant remnant, or for the, the, the saints under the old covenant, the remnant that was there, they still had to go through judgment, didn't they? They still had to be taken away. The ones who were alive, the ones who pleaded, the ones we see in Hosea 2, the faithful remnant pleading with their mother, the child pleading with their mother, please turn to the Lord, please come back to your husband. They still have to go through judgment, don't they? Historically, redemptive historically. And so there is this comfort for them, this comfort and encouragement as they have to pass through that, they have the words of verses 8, 9, 10 and 11. They have the words of 6. They have the words of chapter 2. They have the words of chapter 3 that they can carry with them as they watch their nation burn, as they really and actually go through judgment. And so, how can I give you up? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred again, that anthropopathic type language that we see here. This, this God's love, this heart churning, this sympathy that is stirred to help teach us about God's love for us. And notice how God's love is different than man's. Well, A, because it's perfect. Uh, but also, man is not very loving. Man likes to think they're loving, right? 
We like to think we're all about loving people and being good, and not at all. Notice verse 9. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. Man wants justice. Man wants exacting revenge, don't they? Man does not love. Man doesn't even want exacting revenge. Man wants to punish. Man wants to hurt. Assyria knew how to hurt people. Babylon knew how to hurt people. Israel <laughs> learned how to hurt people in the book of, in, uh, throughout their history as well under the wicked and awful kings. Man knows how to hurt. Man knows how to be wicked. Only God is love. And only God knows love. And we only know love in him. And we only know how to love because of him. We only know what love is because God is love. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. He will not come in terror, for I am God and not man. I am holy. He is holy in who he is. He is holy in his love. His love is not like man's. It's meant to teach us something about God, that God really is love. The holy one in your midst, the one who is high and lofty, the one who is holy other, the one who is purity, I will not come with terror. So we see he's going to bring judgment, but then we see this reversal type language again, speaking about how he executes his justice, but then he also demonstrates his love. He also shows his love by this restoration he's going to bring. And we see that restoration in verses 10 and 11. We see the restored child in verses 10 and 11. Notice we see when the people come, it shall be a true fear of the Lord. Notice we see how he's going to roar like a lion. They're going to walk after the Lord. They're going to follow in his ways. He's going to call and they're going to come. He will roar. He has this authority. He is like that lion. He is that king. He is the king of the jungle. And when he speaks, his subjects listen to him. When he roars, then his sons shall come trembling from the west. His cubs shall come trembling from the west. They're going to come back from where they were. Again, this restoration. We see God's exodus as he saves the people. In Hosea, we see the reversal of that exodus. And now we see again that God is going to bring that exodus once again. In a lot of ways, the restoration when they return uh, after the decree of Cyrus in 538 BC, that is a second exodus. So there's the first exodus, which is out of Egypt. There's kind of another exodus out of Babylon, but the true and proper exodus that those first two point to is in Jesus Christ. And so that only comes because of him. And so what is being spoken of here in verses 10 and 11 is the redeemed, uh, is, the redeemed is, is the church, is Christ's people. They shall come, he shall call, and they shall listen. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, drawing our attention back to that first one, like a dove from the land of Assyria, like the second one. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. I will let them come and they shall dwell in this land and it shall be theirs once again. One thing that's interesting is the word for bird there or dove there uh, is the same one that we saw in chapter seven when I wanted to call that sermon as dumb as doves, but I said that probably wouldn't be very nice. But Ephraim also is like a silly dove without sense. They who were once senseless and timorous shall come. Here's the king who calls, and they shall see, and they shall come. They shall return to the Lord. They shall come to him. He, he roars, and then the people come. Again, this Exodus-type language, this dispersed people shall return to their 
home. So great encouragement, this restoration of a wayward child. But we know that that comes because of Christ Jesus. And there is some New Testament application that we get from verse 1. So you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We read the Bible with Christocentric eyes. We read the Bible with Christ-focused eyes. As Christ says, all the law and the prophets point to whom? He says me. They all point to him. And so Matthew, who is probably finishing the Hebrew Bible, he is stringing all these Old Testament quotations together to highlight that when Jesus comes, he comes to fulfill. He comes to fulfill Testament prophecy. And so we see in verses 13, 14, and 15 that as a young child, as the, uh, the young boy, he has to flee. They have to go to Egypt. They have to flee into Egypt. They have to go outside of the land of, Egypt, uh, of Israel uh, for safety reasons. There is this trouble for Emmanuel, this trouble for the ruler of Judah, this trouble for the one who is Jesus, who came to save his people from their sins. And so he is told, Joseph is told to take Mary and take Jesus into Egypt. He goes, in a lot of ways, back to Egypt. And so he goes, verse 14, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Who is the my son, brethren? It is Christ Jesus. Israel is a type of Christ. Adam is a type of Christ. Jesus is that firstborn. Now, there is this uh, personal aspect, Jesus is my son, but certainly as you read it in Hosea chapter 11, Israel is the corporate son. And so it's not just that he is his own son, it's not just that he is the son of the father, but he is also the one who is doing what Israel could not do. He is the one who is being brought up out of the land of Egypt. He is the one who is engaging in exodus like salvation for his people. We're not supposed to miss that, are we? We're not supposed to miss that Jesus is doing what Israel... He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. What does that refer to, do you think? Or even the idea of what we see here, how out of Egypt I called my son. We are meant to see that Jesus is Israel, that all of Israel points to him, that he is the one who comes and brings that fulfillment as the true Israel, and the church is then the, uh, the, the true Israel, the new Israel in him because of what he has done. Now there's threats too, just like with the first exodus, the threat of the baby boys who were killed. And now there's a threat of the baby boys who are killed here by Herod, Pharaoh in Exodus, or in, in, yeah, in Exodus and Herod here. There's all these connections. The Bible is riddled with all these connections to teach us about whom? Jesus. The Sunday school answer applies to what the Bible is about. If you just say Jesus, you're probably going to get it right because it is always about Jesus. It's always about him. And it's all about, always about the salvation that he brings for such undeserving people because he loves us. Brethren, he loves us, doesn't he? And we see his love for us in his dying for us. 
We see his love for us, the son's love for us in his taking on a human nature, stooping, taking on, assuming that he might become obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We have a loving God for a wicked people. We have a loving God for a wicked and restored Christian. We have a loving God and we see his love for us in what the son does and the son taking on a human nature. And if he loves us, dear brethren, if he cares for us, dear brethren, we ought to praise his name. We ought to honor him. We ought to glorify him. And we ought to find comfort in the truth that as the church of Christ, we shall not be handed over. We are saved. We are redeemed. He loves his church. She shall not be removed. Christians, if you believed on Christ, you will not be handed over. You are Christ, and none of his sheep shall be snatched from his hand. Yes, there are false churches that can be purged. There are temporary believers who just profess, but they have not actually laid hold of Christ. They shall, uh, shall be purged as well. But true Christians who've believed upon Christ as their Savior do not need to fear. And why? Because he loves you. We can say that, brethren, can't we? The gospel is Jesus lived, died, and rose again, but what's the motive? What's God's purpose? What is the backdrop of that? It is God's love. It is God's love for a wicked and wayward people. We have such a caring Savior for such undeserving people. And I think Ryle sums it up well, and this is where we will close. The Lord Jesus is just the Savior that the suffering and sorrowful need. He knows well what we mean when we tell him in prayer of our troubles. He can sympathize with us when we cry to him under cruel persecution. Let us keep nothing back from him. Let us make him our bosom friend. Let us pour out our hearts before him. He has had great experience of affliction. And why does he have great experience of affliction? Because he became a curse for us that we might be redeemed. That is God's love for us. As God says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, let us pray. Our God, we are thankful for your great plan of redemption. We are thankful again that it is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are thankful that he is the true Israel. We are thankful that he is the one whom the law and the prophets point to. And we are thankful it is because of him that we know that all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And we are thankful that he advocates for us even now, even as we still struggle with sins. And we're thankful, O oh Father, that you still chasten us. You correct us, you, um, when we are wayward, you guide us, you help us know the truth and grow in it. And we ask and pray that we would be ever watchful, that we would be ever be on guard, that we would ever be careful, that we would not backslide. And we pray that we'd always be pressing forward in the things of the truth, the things of heaven, the things of um, what are right and good. And when we have moments of backsliding, help us to know that there is a great savior who has forgiven us and loved us, and may we find our forgiveness and assurances in him and his finished work. We confess, O oh Lord, we do not fathom, we do not comprehend your love. We do not comprehend the infinity of it, or the, uh, we don't comprehend the eternality of it. We do not comprehend uh, what it means that you are love when we simply can possess or not possess love. And yet we are thankful for what you've revealed in your word, how you stoop to our nature, even in, our word, uh, in your word, to help us better uh, understand, at least according to our ways, uh, what, your, what your love is for us. So thank you so much that we see it in Christ. This is where we know what love is. And we pray that tonight would be a night of encouragement, a night of uplifting, 
Uh, even as we consider the seriousness of sin and final judgment, we pray that your people would be uplifted. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please save their souls. Please cause them to look to Christ and find mercy in him. Thank you for all you do. Be with us tonight, we pray. Help us as we go into the world. In the name of Christ.